My dear Bagginses and Boffins, Tooks and Brandybucks, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Brace Girdles, and Proudfoots. Proud feet. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy, Night 20 Years Hence. This was the great watchtower of Amun-Sum. We shall rest here tonight. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is A Knife in the Dark, our seventh episode in our Fellowship of the Ring coverage. Today, Frodo receives a wound at Amonsul that never quite heals. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. I would like to use the space to also reiterate that we have some stretch goals over at patreon.com slash bomb. stretch goals that include covering the book-only scenes from Fellowship of the Ring, as well as the extended edition scenes, and as it turns out, in the last episode, or two episodes ago, we promised to sing Tom Bombadil songs if we meet those <laughs> stretch goals, so there's also that. And uh, we usually like to have a discussion topic. Uh, at the beginning of our episodes, but today we're going to be diving into the Northern Kingdom, which doesn't get a whole lot of mention in the movies or maybe even none at all. Uh, so we're actually going to hold off on our discussion until we get to the Tolkien recap, because um, that way it'll just kind of be more relevant there since it's more of book-oriented stuff. And another quick programming note, just to keep our episodes more thematically coherent, we are going to skip an Isengard scene that precedes the events at Weathertop and bundle it with another Isengard scene that comes right after. Strider has led the hobbits to Amonsul, or Weathertop, an ancient lookout for the northern kingdom, now in ruins. It commands a good view of the surrounding lands, and is the most logical place to crash for the night. They find Adele in the side of the hill to take refuge. Strider needs to take a look around, but first, he provides the hobbits each with swords, which may be daggers to a normal man, but are perfectly long for hobbit hands. Night falls, and Frodo dozes off for a bit but he's suddenly awakened by fire, a campfire. His three kinsmen are having some midnight bacon, perhaps to make up for the second breakfast and elevensies Aragorn denied them earlier. Frodo rushes to his feet and stamps out the fire, berating his foolish friends for lighting a beacon to their exact location. Within seconds, that familiar Nazgul shriek rings through the air. The hobbits make for the summit as five Nazgul approach the ancient stronghold. They metaphorically circle the wagons, trying to locate their hunters amongst the ruins and pitch-dark covering Amonsul. As if materializing from the darkness, the five Nazgul appear with swords in the ready position, towering over the hobbits. Samwise the Brave acts first, lunging at the ringwraiths, but he is harmlessly thrown aside. Merry and Pip get shoved aside as well, and it's just Frodo now stumbling backwards, losing his sword and his feet. 
Just like before, a sudden desire to put on the ring comes over him, and as he takes it out, one of the Nazgul comes forward, drawing a Morgul knife. We will learn later on that this is the Witch King of Angmar, the greatest of the Ringwraiths. With no other options, Frodo puts on the ring and briefly disappears from view. Frodo now gets a real good look at them. They all appear as ghosts of kings, tall, noble, and insidious. They can't see him, but as Aragorn said, they feel the presence of the ring. The Witch King reaches out, and the one ring seems to be pulled towards him, but at the last second, Frodo pulls back. Blindly, the Witch King drives his dagger towards Frodo, staking him right in the shoulder. Still in the Twilight World, Frodo rises in pain as he catches a quick glance of another figure in black making his arrival with steel and flame. Strider has returned, and he is about to kick some ass. Frodo pulls off the ring, and Sam immediately rushes over to his fallen comrade. Strider fends off the remaining Nazgul with his sword and torch, parrying their attacks and lighting their cloaks on fire, sending them scurrying. The last of the ringwraiths takes it on the chin as Aragorn throws his torch to ward him off. The Nazgul continue to shriek as they go, but at least this time, it's in defeat. With danger temporarily averted, all focus returns to Frodo. He's been stabbed, yes, but this is no mere wound. It was inflicted by a Morgul blade, and Strider has not yet learned Cure 3, so they have <laughs> no choice but to head for Rivendell for Elvish medicine. Is Elvish medicine the big pharma of Middle-earth? <laughs> Frodo is not only hurt, but also confused, slowly slipping away from this earthly plane. He cries for Gandalf, and our proto-fellowship finds themselves in between Weathertop and a hard place, as Rivendell is six days out. Is he going to die? He's passing into the Shadow World. He'll soon become a wraith like them. <gasps> yeah, so this is the big one. This is Amon Sul. This is the first real step that we've taken into, to borrow Obi-Wan Kenobi's words, uh, a wider world. Um, we've been to Bree, but Bree has kind of small town vibes to it. Um, Amon Sul is the first look we really get at this wider ancient world that surrounds the Shire, but never really penetrates into it. Um, and my God, what a what, what a first step to take um, to to really sort of barrel out of the safety of the the world that these hobbits have grown up in, and to immediately get stabbed um, is is definitely one of those things that I feel like you would see passed around on Facebook by like suburban moms who really don't want their kids to go into the big city. Um, but I, I I just love the scene, and I think it's really visually striking, and in in a way that I think sets the tone for the rest of the scenes that deal with the Manish kingdoms. Um, but it also sets up how. Or not sets up because Galadriel's prologue really sets up, but but starts to build upon how this movie will deal with um, history and the rich history of um, Middle Earth and and uh, on on a meta scale, um, Tolkien's legendarium, um, and and I think the way that Weathertop kind of looks in the film really protruding out of an otherwise kind of flat, not as impressive landscape um, is really such like a, a statement of purpose for. Um, this kind of last two thirds, I, can't, I don't know if I can say the last two thirds, but the next two thirds of this film and, and the sort of scale of epicness that we're about to get. Um, and it is, it is really just a, a, a lovely kind of um, way to kick in that door. Yeah. I, I didn't really put this in the notes, but if you kind of view um, 
everything up to this point and maybe a couple scenes after as like the first act of Fellowship of the Ring. This is the climax of the first act. Um, everything kind of comes to a head. The Nazgul finally, you know, come face to face with their quarry. Um, we see Aragorn kind of show us what he's made of. And it just kind of all that like darkness and, you know, danger that was just off screen is now visibly in front of our protagonist. And then we see them actually suffer a grievous wound or specifically Frodo in this case. And it kind of puts it puts a cap on like this portion because as we know the Nazgul kind of have this scene and then the chase with Arwen uh, in a couple episodes from now um, and then they kind of take a backseat for the rest of this film and then show up a little more sporadically in the final two films yeah and I think this is such like a brilliant place to do it um, in terms of the in-universe relationship of of weathertop and amensul to uh well well to the rest of the world to the rest of middle earth um and we're gonna get into this you know far more extensively in uh when we talk about um well when we talk about the northern kingdom um but i think like geographically as you say like this is like the 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 climax of the narrative but it's also geographically the center point between um brie and rivendell and for us that is actually quite like a like it that doesn't mean anything more than it's a center point, but in um, sort of like moral and narrative terms for this story, that ends up being something that's quite important and imbues this place with like a lot of uh, like historical significance as we're going to get to later. Um, but I mean, for for what this is, for the way that it, it's set up, um, it is really sort of the the there is no turning back now, and and the fact that they have to climb up this, you know, it's a, it's a hill, but it's quite a like a tall and jagged and impressive hill. This is really the moment at which they can't climb back down ever, um, and they are just going to keep climbing, even if they do have to get off Weathertop. They are just going to keep climbing all the way through, um, and there will never be that easy kind of breezy landscape of the Shire ever again. Or not for another couple of months and uh, several massive battles. Right, right. And uh, I like how you mentioned that this spot is, or Weathertop, not the spot, is halfway between Bree and Rivendell, uh, which is basically the last, you know, location that we put a flag up on. And then the next location we're going to put a flag up on uh, in terms of our coverage. And to kind of fill out some of that geography, um, Weathertop is the southernmost and tallest of the Weather Hills, which overlooks the East Road. Um, you don't really get a shot looking at other hills in this movie, but theoretically there's a long line of hills running north to south with Weathertop being the southernmost of them and the tallest, as I said. Um, it was a watchtower for the Northern Kingdom of Arnor, which, again, we're going to talk about more in our book section. Um, this is the place where the last alliance armies, the armies of men and elves, uh, met up uh, to begin their march to Mordor. Um, and a palantir, which we dove into a, a couple episodes ago, the Seeing Stones, uh, there was one, one once located here as well. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, um, you know, given that there's all of this sort of historical background to it, I think one of the things that works really well for this is that you never are, in, in the films, you're never really faced with that rich historical background. You get a sense that something happened here and something was important here. But all of that is so far in the past that there's not really even, you know, memories of it lingering anymore. There's etchings and stone, but not a huge amount left. And I think this is really for the first time where we get this kind of post-apocalyptic sense in Lord of the Rings. And I think that that post-apocalyptic nature of Middle-earth 
um, or mid-apocalyptic nature of Middle Earth is um, really important to how this film portrays the story because it is a story where the vast majority of the action has already occurred. Um, and and in the case of um, this particular story, um, it's occurred thousands of years before our main characters even are born. Um, and so it really is kind of, we're, we're hitting a, a, a greater history in Lurch, but everyone who really remembers it, Bar, you know, some of the people we're about to meet, um, have forgotten about it and we're trying, you know, with our, with these characters, we're trying to pick up the pieces and figure out how to complete this, um, wider arc when we really have nothing to go on. Yeah. And I think, uh, in Vigo Mortensen's delivery on, you know, this was the great watchtower of Amon Sul, um, it, there's just a tinge of sadness in it. Like he knows like what this place once was and how far it's fallen. And I think it's, you know, pretty appropriate to have like the first major set piece of these films kind of here on the ruins of old history, on the ruins of another world that has long since passed. Um, because like you say, this is, you know, a sliver of the time frame of all the events that have gone into shaping and molding Middle Earth into what it is today. And we're really catching the last at this point, let's say like yearish uh, between now and you know the destruction of the ring, um, we're just seeing a sliver of that time frame. But uh, just by putting this kind of set piece, this moment, um, whether by Tolkien or by Jackson, on top of the ruins of failed civilizations and you know time long past, um, it kind of adds a certain level of I don't know what the word I'm looking for is heft or history to it. Um, but it definitely kind of ups the ante a little bit. It makes you realize that this is just another event in a long story of events, only some of which we even have the capacity to grasp. Yeah. And one of the things for me that this really reminds me of is um, in sort of the late 18th century, early 19th century, there was a, a trend for young, rich people, whether they were bourgeois or aristocratic nobles, um, to go tour all of the ancient ruins of Europe. And, and this would predominantly be classical ruins, so they'd be hitting up um, Italy and, and Greece, um, occasionally Turkey. Um, but these sorts of grand tours as um, almost disaster tourism, uh, plus a thousand years, um, and it was all this, you know, built into this sort of romantic notion of placing yourself and thinking to place yourself in these epic histories. Um, and, and that was sort of like the idle, like dilettante-ish thing to do. Um, but this is in, all, in some ways what is happening for uh, the Hobbits plus Aragorn. And they are kind of going on this grand tour, except it's a grand tour of necessity. And as they are going through this, this great history, it, it's acting less as like a, a way to kind of give them purpose and their otherwise purposeless lives and more as a way to kind of freak them out about what the, consequences if they should fail are yeah no I, I didn't even think about that but yeah this this could be the fate that awaits both our fellowship characters and all of middle earth if they do not succeed in their quest to destroy the ring um they don't know they're on that quest quite yet um but yeah it is a glimpse of an alternative future almost like staring at the glass of galadriel or the mirror of galadriel sorry um where uh, sam and frodo later see possible alternate ends weathertop is a living monument to another possible end to middle earth that was thankfully forestalled and, you know, I'd say just out and out abruptly stopped by the Fellowship and Frodo and Sam and all that. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, I, you know, as we were sort of getting at in um, 
the last episode when we were talking about the Nazgul, and I also need to put a flag on that because I have to come back and make an apology. Um, but in the last episode, we were talking about how, you know, the, there is a personal and kind of intimate element of um, Aragorn's dealings with the Nazgul because, you know, he has some, at least in the movie, or some relationship to um, these these hooded figures, um, some sort of family relationship. Um, and Amon Sul is, is also something that is, you know, quite significant for his family specifically. Um, and we'll, we will, I, I feel like I'm going to keep saying this, but we'll get to it more in, in, uh, the later discussion, but you know, this is a, a character moment for Aragorn in terms of placing him and what his, um, his family is doing and what he's sort of working to repent on in context. Um, and um, it, it really is, you know, given that there's not really a huge amount of explanation here, most of this is done through um, Vigo Mortensen's facial expressions, really, because that's, that's all we get from him a lot of the time. Um, it is uh, a really kind of strong way to, to kind of say, we're not going to do a huge amount of the history, but we are still going to show that it's relevant in some ways, just not in the, the ways that you might be able to do if this were a book. Um, and now I need to make my apology, which is that in last episode, um, I said, I brazenly claimed that, um, actually maybe it wasn't last episode, maybe it was a couple episodes ago. Nonetheless, um, I brazenly claimed that, um, all of the Nazgul were, uh, lords of Numenor, um, and, um, meant to be, um, you know, from Numenor specifically, but related to kind of Gondor and Arnor intimately through that connection to Numenor. Um, I actually was wrong on that. Um, in the books, only three of the Nazgul are known to be lords of Numenor. They are definitely lords. Um, one of the other Nazgul, the only that's named besides the Witch King is um, an Easterling, Camel of Easterling, which is just like a baller name. Um, but yeah, only three are confirmed Numenorian. You know, the rest could be, but they're not confirmed. So my apologies there. Oh, you're okay. I'm never going to be able to correct you on stuff. So you're in charge of correcting yourself on those kind of uh, nitty gritty legendarium details. I'm just going to start inventing um, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't be able to uh, to deny you. So, um, but I mean, we can just broadly start talking about the battle on top of Weathertop. And this is going to start a kind of blending into um, some of our cinematography and score stuff. But um, some other things I want to at least kind of mention while we're out there is that um, the way that the Nazgul carry their swords, uh, which we kind of saw in Bree as well before they stabbed the bedsheets, is very religious in a way. The way they hold it up in front of their faces, um, it looks like they're holding a cross of sorts or it'd be an inverted cross given... Um, um, the fact that a sword is, you know, more of an inverted cross and you can, you know, make any kind of conclusion that you will from that based on uh, Tolkien's Catholicism or whatever other kind of Christian or religious reading you want to put on it. But it goes really hand in hand with the fact that the score is going to be Gregorian chanting. And we're going to get to the score a little bit later again because we have a so sound clip for that. But um, it definitely does create... I don't know if it's like a religious, but it's very spiritual in a way. Um, also, again, because this is kind of the graveyard of the Northern Kingdom. You see statues. It's kind of like a mausoleum on top of Weathertop. Um, there's all this just kind of religious imagery that kind of speaks to whether it's the otherworldliness or the unknowability of some of the stuff surrounding the Nazgul. Yeah, it reminds me of sort of like the horror movie versions of like the Knights Templar and and that sort of like um evil 
kind of underworld network um, that is kind of timeless and like standing athwart history. Um, God, that's like the, it's not New Republic, that's some awful right-wing rags motto. I've just realized now that I've said that. <laughs> Anyways, um, it, it has that kind of sense of like, there is this like high medieval, but also like insidious um ritualistic element to it and that I quite like it and I think you are totally right with the upside down cross and like how significant that is um but it's also like to me very like um evocative of of the sort of like um loss of control um that's going on in the scene um because you know as we see them holding their swords in this sort of upside down cross and and moving in this like very nice smooth choreography we're also seeing them from directly above which is really giving us a sense of how small the hobbits are um and for the first time you know we're kind of seeing how tiny they feel in this wider environment and how little control they actually have even if they are armed they really can't save themselves at all. No, that's absolutely right. Um, and speaking of arms, I do uh, also want to shout out the Morgul blade, which is the sword or the knife, the blade, whatever, that uh, ends up stabbing Frodo that's pulled by the Witch King of Angmar. Um, this is not something I really paid much attention to the first time I saw the movies. I just thought he stuck him with his normal sword. Uh, but, you know, going back to the scene, you know, over the last 20 years, I do realize that uh, when the Witch King of Angmar does turn his head and notice that Frodo has taken out the ring, he does pull out a second blade that's different than his great sword or long sword or whatever the hell he's wielding. Um, he does pull out a shorter knife, and that's the one he sticks with Frodo, and this is a wound that um, they'll discuss throughout the uh, films as a wound that will never fully heal. Um, it always kind of bothers Frodo, especially when he's in the pre presence of Nazgul again. Uh, in future movies, you'll see him... Uh, uh, what's it called? Holding onto his left shoulder, um, you know, kind of reliving the pain and the trauma that this uh, stabbing caused him. Yeah. And I think this is like another way to really cement the fact that Frodo is going to be intimately connected with, uh, with Mordor for the rest of his life. Um, and, you know, he's given um, sort of the grace of the elves to go to Valinor to heal from his wounds as a ring bearer. But even then, he will never be able to disentangle himself from Mordor and from this story. And so even though at this point he hasn't agreed to take the ring to uh, Mount Doom yet, we are now still getting a sense that this is something that is going to take up the rest of his life and, and he will never, ever be able to turn back. Yep. And with that, we'll kind of pivot to our cinematography and score section. And a lot of this is just going to be reveling in how well um, this film really sets up Weathertop as a location. Um, it has some great establishing shots when they first uh, pull up to Weathertop. Um, you can see the hill against kind of like a gray, beige sky. Um, and then, you know, it immediately cuts to nightfall. And then you can see the fire burning in the side of the hill where the hobbits are cooking up some baking. Um, and then you just get more and more kind of setup shots. Uh, when the Nazgul arrive, you get a kind of a point of view shot from, um, what's it called? The hobbits looking down from their little dell. And you see the, uh, what's it called? The Nazgul kind of walk up. And then we see them make for the summit. And just everything about the set that is the top of Weathertop is just super cool, um, super great. Um, I'm going to let you go first and then I'll chime in uh, with some stuff after. Yeah, so this is one of the first scenes of many in Lord of the Rings that I really appreciate as someone with um, like really, really horrible eyes. Um, my eyesight is 
um, just the worst of the worst. Um, and I often struggle um, in films, especially modern films, recent films, um, with seeing scenes that are shot at night. Um, usually if I know that like a nighttime scene is coming up in a film, I kind of just write it off as like, I'm never going to know what happened in the scene. There's no, there is no hope for me here. Um, not so in Lord of the Rings. Um, Fellowship is um, not, doesn't have a huge amount that deals with like nighttime. Yes, Mori is quite dark, but they have sort of some artificial light going there. This is one of the few nighttime scenes, extended nighttime scenes um, that really kind of made me stop and, realize how um well lit it is um and i you know i don't want to get into like the boring game of thrones discourse for one of the last episodes when you know the battle of winterfell or whatever it is um i think that is kind of like boring and overplayed but i do think there is a lot of merit to pointing out the fact that this is a scene that occurs entirely at night um and yet there is never any element of this that is difficult to see um it is always well lit you can always see what action is going on you can always see facial features you can always tell what every inch of what the director and creative team want you to see, you can see. Um, and that is like a, a testament to, um, I'm not going to call it the lost art because that's kind of douchey to like the really good lighting designers <laughs> that are still active, but the increasingly dying art of good lighting in cinema um, and, um, you know, night times especially, um, night, night scenes especially are, are something that we like have kind of given up on. Um, and I'm immensely grateful to the scene <laughs> for <laughs> allowing me to actually see it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. Um, and even as someone who apologized for a lot of Game of Thrones does, yeah, that uh, long night episode, um, you shouldn't have to adjust your TV to optimal settings or certain settings to be able to see what's happening. And while that's a very egregious example and you're right not to do a discourse, I do feel it is something that's kind of permeated all like the entire way we shoot stuff i don't know if it has to do with the fact that we're doing everything so digitally now um, but i even saw and this is way off topic here but a comparison of women falling in spider-man movies going back to uh, kirsten dunst in the sam raimi movies uh to um Emma Stone in uh, the Garfield movies, and finally uh, Zendaya in the most recent ones. And just watching the color palette over the last 20 years kind of just absolutely dissolve <laughs> into yeah. just gray mushiness is just really heart-rendering. And there's no reason nighttime scenes should be hard to shoot. I mean, they've been doing it successfully for over 100 years. Um, the fact that it just looks so much worse now um, is really kind of a mark against the way kind of uh, color palette, cinematography, um, you know, monochrome coloring of uh, f uh, film is just kind of leading us towards this kind of mushy look. And uh, this actually goes hand in hand with the scene we talked about a couple episodes ago where they escape from the Shire and take Buckleberry Ferry. It's all in dark and there isn't much light or natural light aside from moonlight, but you can clearly see everything. Um, you can see the Nazgul blacks against the dark blues of the sky. You can make out which Hobbit is where. Um, you have a sense of geography and place. Um, all that stuff really works in Lord of the Rings. And again, I don't want to say the phrase lost art, but it definitely feels like something we just don't emphasize more. Um, and I really appreciate how well and clear it is. And they still use it to... Um, great effect because not only is everything visible, but they have this great shot of when the Nazgul first emerge on the top of the hill. And it's just like, you can 
in the distance is black sky, and then you slowly see the Nazgul stepping forward as if they materialized out of nowhere, even though they're just walking into frame. Um, just the effect and how clear they're able to shoot um, the black sky versus the black cloak, um, you can still make them out clearly when they start their um, infiltration, so to speak, of the top of Weathertop. Yeah, and I think this goes kind of like um, hand in hand with my like ongoing crusade against like hyperrealism and in, in film, um, and or like, well, yeah, so hyperrealism, but like hyperrealism through the sense of like anything that happens on screen has to be like a hundred percent accurate to what was happening in like the reality of this universe, and like I really want everybody to know that I'm doing like heavy air quotes on reality. Um, there, that is kind of a new-ish trend in, in cinema, this this like notion that like the the what happens in on screen has to be like an accurate representation of what would happen in in real life if this movie were happening in real life. Um, and uh, again, something that I've kind of said in um, quite a few of these episodes, you know, the Lord of the Rings films really take a, a firm um, stance on, film stylization they really do know what sort of look and uh, vibe they're going for and it's not a realistic one it's a a storybook kind of fairy story one um and because they have you know actively chosen to make something that does not seem 100% realistic 100% of the time it means they could actually make their scenes look better with fewer constraints because it doesn't matter that it's not as dark as it would be if we were there they can show everything they need to show. They can use blue light to do it. And none of us sitting there as audience members are thinking, oh, well, you know, when I go outside after I'm done with this movie, the the sky isn't really going to be that blue. We're not really thinking about that. We're thinking about the action that's going on on screen. Um, and and this decision to kind of like abjure this like hyper-realist bullshit means that we're actually getting a much better movie overall. We're able to focus on the narrative a lot more. Um, it is really something that I think... Um, it's kind of sad that we've lost, um, but is like definitely something that uh, like we're going to keep having to bring up because it is done so effectively in these films and is really something that should be in a lot of ways a model for all of the films that um, come in the next 20 years until the heat death of the planet. Yeah. Um, one thing I've always said is I love the artifice of cinema. Um, I don't care if something doesn't look 100%, you know, like it's, you know, actually exists or is realistic. Um, I like, even if I can tell, oh, that's a dummy, that's a prop, that's a set. Like, I have no problem with that because I love the craft work that goes into it. And I also, as an adult, understand that I'm watching a movie and not watching real life. So I'm allowing those kind of things to slide away because they're often going to be used in service of story or character or an aesthetic like they do here. Um, I don't know if he deserves all the blame, but I think a lot of it really starts with uh, 2005's Batman Begins, um, just because, and I like um, the Nolan Batmans, especially the first two, and it, like as a singular idea for, you know, we've had these super campy Batman movies, let's do something that, imagine if this happened in our real world. Like, you can do that for, like, you know, a take on a character like they did in those Nolan movies, but then somehow that became this pre sorry, the prescription for every movie there and after. Um, and especially because it's in the Batman movies and then picked up with 2008's Iron Man and then, you know, taken forward with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, you know, dominates the cinematic landscape. That's kind of become the bread and butter 
for uh, basically everything, whether it's comic books or not. Um, this, you know, adhe adherence to reality, to hyper-realism, so that the, you know, Department of Defense will give you millions of dollars so you can use their guns and tanks in their movies, um, I think has actually been just a major detriment to film overall. And I think we're lucky that these Lord of the Rings films kind of existed before that sort of filmmaking really took over as the modus operandi of, you know, Western filmmaking. Yeah. And I think, what so one of the things that we talk about quite a bit on this podcast is like the earnestness of these films. Um, and I was reading an article um, either this morning or last night talking about the new um, Cowboy Bebop um, uh, Netflix TV show. And I haven't seen the anime and I haven't seen the show, but I was really interested in this article. Um, and I've immediately forgotten the person who um, wrote it, but they they really had a, an excellent point, um, which is that um, a lot of the kind of shoddy dialogue, the, the sort of Whedon speak, the Joss Whedon speak that, that goes on um, in modern cinema and modern TV comes from this sort of fear of being earnest. Um, and it comes from this sort of inherent contradiction created by this like desire to be hyper realistic in how things on screen are portrayed. Um, and and the the sort of unreality of a lot of fictional or fantasy or sci-fi um, premises. You know, it, if you are desperate to pretend that this is something that could happen in the real world, um, having like for example, um, a bunch of guys walking around in um, black hoods screeching like banshees is not something that is is going to fly on the street, you know, in Dundee where I live or in New York City or wherever. Um, you have to kind of play with this 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 feeling of like sarcasm or irony because it is so um at odds with what we know of the world and the response from a lot of filmmakers has been to just do um oh there's just this brilliant line that the the writer had where it was like you know a lot of the dialogue ends up being um they're not you know characters aren't speaking to other characters it's screenwriters speaking through characters to the audience um, and I and I would amend to that in a kind of juvenile way that is scared of earnestness because you know when you're 17 years old or emotionally 17 years old, um, you can't really like anything because there's a risk that your friends won't think it's cool or your friends won't be interested. So you have to mask your your interest in things through seven different layers of irony. Um, and I think you know Lord of the Rings um, really benefits because it doesn't have to mask any, anything in irony. It is 100% earnest about its premise and its plot, um, and it um, it doesn't need to to play around with um, and making fun of itself or winking, you know, at its audience. Um, and and um, we are able to suspend our disbelief as audience members, not just because, you know, it's a great story and it's a great story told well, but because there's never any expectation on our behalf that this is something that we should be looking for as realistic. Um, and that is set right from the off through the, the the aesthetic choices of the creative team, which is just to say, fuck what reality looks like. This is going to be a storybook. Um, and we as the audience are introduced to that line of thought and we accept it and it makes it that much easier for us to suspend our disbelief, whether it's, um, you know, giant eagles or whether it's um, nighttime lighting being blue instead of um, impossible to see. 
Yeah, uh, that's absolutely just fantastically said. I had never actually put together the idea that both the trend towards realism goes hand in hand with the snarky, um, not taking what's happening too seriously, especially if it's something fantastical or outside of our own kind of, you know, real world understanding of how things work. Um, like they absolutely go hand to hand and they feed off each other. Um, and that's kind of why you know, we have this, you know, Cowboy Bebop live action remake, which I haven't watched, but our good friend Kiefer has watched and hated <laughs> and is writing, I think, 5,000 words about why he hates it. But it just seems like every, it seems very just Guardians of the Galaxy to me. And again, you know, I like the Guardians of the Galaxy like movies, um, but like I don't need everything to be that or even worse, I don't need them to all be Deadpool or whatever. Yeah. Like I don't need every media I consume to have the same tone and voice. And like you said, it doesn't even feel like the voice of characters speaking to each other, but voices that are meant to speak to us as an audience. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, I really like about um, this scene in particular is, you know, it has every possibility of and every potential of being hokey and being kind of cringe and kind of embarrassing. You know, the these are, you know, black, you know, dementor looking creatures. Obviously, I'm of the generation that, that grew up in, in the, the Harry Potter verse. So, oh, Harry Potter verse, that's awful. Uh, Harry Potter <laughs> hegemonized world. Um, and so like the dementors are my point of reference on this, um, even though they came after. Um, but, you know, that that could look really cringe and embarrassing. And that could be something where, you know, I'd like hide my head in my hands and say, oh, this just doesn't look good. But because they go for it with, you know, the earnestness dialed up to 11, it works. It just works really brilliantly. And they don't have to play off any potential weaknesses by like, you know, acknowledging to the audience that they think it's weak. They just get to, they get to do it and they get to be really excited about what they're putting on screen. And because, you know, it's, it's obvious that the creative team is excited about what they're putting on screen. We as the audience are enabled to also feel excited about it. And it is quite refreshing in that way. And in, in this landscape of, unless it is profitable, we can't really like any, like, unless it is profitable to us and makes us money, we can't really like anything earnestly. And, you know, part of what makes the scene feel so alive and so fresh compared to, you know, kind of all the sludge we've been kind of berating for the last 10 minutes is the fact that they use like an actual set here for the top of Weathertop. And I'm sure it's against a green screen, but it's like the perfect kind of scene where you can just envelope the background in black um, and then let everything on the set. And you see like broken columns and archways, you see statues. And one thing I like about, uh, Lord of the Rings broadly is that a lot of the statues, especially those that are meant to be from uh, the kingdoms of men, whether Gondor or Arnor or whatever, they all kind of vaguely look like Aragorn. Mm. Um, you see it a little more later um, in, at the Argonath. And I think especially when we get to Denethor's court in Return of the King, like the statues in Denethor's Hall um, very much have the Aragorn look to them. Um, and it's just like having that physical set so you have a sense of geography. You can see how much space the hobbits are taking up, how small they are relative to both their surroundings and the Nazgul. Um, just having that sense of place really, it makes the world more real than like the most real physics and the most, you know, hyper-realistic, you know, type of filmmaking, you know, wants to do but just can't because um you know we're so you know down the green screen uh nothing really happens in context or in place with everything else nowadays 
Yeah, and I think for me this is this is interesting because, um, and I and I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but I think you know building these sets out as much as they did um, is an equivalent to me for building up the the world of the story to Tolkien sitting down and creating a multiple written languages. Um, I think the, the the creation of like written languages is to books what the creation of a good set is to um, a film. Um, and and I think really with with this scene in particular, where where you are getting that kind of glimpse of like um, the history around it, um, it is um, allowing us as as the audience um, two things. Um, one is like the freedom to ask um, as we sit there and watch it. You know, what who are these people in the background? You know, who are these people in these statues? Why do they matter? I wonder. I wonder. Um, it is also giving us the freedom to not care. Um, and I think both of those things are equally important, um, especially with something, you know, that is the, the, the breadth and scope of Tolkien's Legendarium, being able to pick and choose how, how um, intensively you engage with this kind of source material is really, really important. Um, but it's also something I think that we've like broadly lost in, in terms of like filmmaking um, and well, I guess like, like anything film, TV, I guess books aren't really as, as much of a part of this anymore as they used to, but there's this sort of Wikipediafication of um, of culture and, and this this sort of feeling that to watch a movie now to you know if I wanted to go and sit in the theater and watch I don't know what the most recent Marvel film is The Eternals or whatever I would also have needed to watch uh, the previous twelve films plus two different TV shows plus. God knows how many like YouTube shorts or Fortnite promos or whatever. Um, and before I even got into that theater, I would need to know a substantial amount of about what this plot is. Otherwise, I'm just not going to have the same viewing experience. Um, and in lieu of that, I need to be able to get on Wikipedia or a Wikipedia-like site and find all of this information. Whereas Lord of the Rings doesn't really ask you to know anything it tells you that there is stuff more stuff to know about if you would like to know it but it does not demand that you know it and, and i think that is is really really readily apparent in this scene where they're giving you all these kind of like little like tasters of what is beyond but never actually making that a, a, a crucial um hinge point upon which your ability to understand the the narrative of these films relies yeah, and I think also some of that, uh, not to uh, apologize for any modern-day films, but I think our media coverage and content cycle also, like something, like I could imagine if The Fellowship was released now, um, we would see articles like the nine Easter eggs you missed in the first half of Fellowship of the Ring, and there'd be, you know, three paragraphs on the statue we see at Weathertop, whereas they're not really meant to be there for you to look up and read about an article, you know, as soon as you get out of the theater, those are just like, you know, if that means something to you as a book reader or someone who's familiar with the Legendarium, that's great. But then in itself, it exists just as it establishes a vibe, it establishes a sense of history. And, you know, it's cool. And I like when, you know, even modern day stuff does have Easter eggs is kind of a poisoned word nowadays, just because it's become such a part of the content mill in terms of writing about popular uh, media. But, you know, we never really had to highlight it. It's like, oh, cool, I noticed this. Oh, that's a neat little flourish. But now it becomes almost the reason people go or a big takeaway or people want to make sure they see the best Easter eggs and know what they mean, as opposed to kind of letting them linger out there. And for me, someone who's mostly just watched the movies and really only read it 
read the books closely recently, a lot of these things kind of just existed in my mind as like, oh, that's a cute nod, but I don't think about it like as something that is like the reason I'm watching these movies or a main takeaway from them. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways it's kind of killed like the art of the homage um, because because everybody's constantly searching for these Easter eggs, um, everything that exists in a film has to exist like in hard fact in the film's universe. Um, and so it becomes a lot harder um, to, to have things that are um, not references to other things in the universe, but are references to things in our universe that are um, evocative for us. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the fact that like, you know, lots of people, I say lots of people, my very like unique sample of people that I speak to um, are, are kind of having this like feeling about like the Wilhelm scream showing up in um, movies as sort of like, oh, it's immersion breaking, even though it's it's like one of the oldest in jokes in cinema. It's quite an exciting and interesting thing. Now, obviously, that in itself is sort of more Easter eggy at this point than homage. But, you know, the the idea that um, you might recreate a shot as Peter Jackson does several times over a fellowship on Two Towers, especially from um, a different version, a different adaptation of Lord of the Rings, um, the fact that you might um, do that or you might make an homage to, like, for example, at Helm's Deep, like Evil Dead, um, Army of Darkness, um, you can't really do that in the same way anymore and and you can't really talk about it in the same way anymore because people want it to be a thing that exists in universe. And so the way that we consume um, these films, I think, has changed and we don't really think about like what the point of these um these sort of choices are in in a narrative sense we think about it in terms of what does it mean for my ability to fill out like my notes essentially about like the human geography of star wars or the economics of the marvel universe yeah and it's maybe kind of fitting that we're spending so much time talking about like this is almost like a monument on the graveyard of old cinema, this last scene, um, because, you know, what would come the two decades following these movies is, you know, the stuff we're kind of complaining about uh, at length. Uh, so it is there is kind of some kind of um, meta tie in there. Um, we can try try and veer this back to the actual scene um, because it is actually a really great scene. Um, I think uh, one of the shots that uh, Emily pointed out earlier that I really love is that there's this great down shot once the Nazgul emerge, and you can really see just how small the hobbits are. And they must have got a bunch of like NBA centers to be the uh, people <laughs> underneath the cloaks for the Nazgul. Because even like from that distance, the camera is from the actual set. Um, you can just tell how tall and towering the Nazgul are um, over the hobbits. And it really, you know, putting them next to each other really shows us um, not the height difference, but the real danger that the hobbits are in just by, you know, height and physical uh, distance and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think it's also this like sense that like um as the world gets bigger around the hobbits, the hobbits are also getting smaller. Um and then you uh, the further we get from this moment, um the taller the hobbits start to look relative to the rest of their scenery um until you know a, a few crucial moments where it's important that they look small, but you know, here we've got um, Frodo and the gang um, against the Nazgul, and they look quite small. Whereas at the end of the film, we have Frodo and Sam against Gollum, um, and they look quite tall, actually, in comparison. Um, and so, so you're kind of starting this like height-based <laughs> and courage-based uh, dialogue here in this scene. 
Yeah, with all apologies to the Balrog, uh, once you face down five Nazgul as a group of hobbits, um, you can only things can only really approve for you. Um, there's nowhere to go but up, uh, quite literally. Um, one thing I want to uh, shout out, we talked about the Wraith world uh, quite a bit, or the Twilight world, or Shadow world. I don't know what the official term is. The script I found online calls it the Twilight world, but the world where uh, Frodo... Um, is when he is wearing the ring um, and everything's kind of slowed down and blurry. Um, we get a good look at the Nazgul, the kings, um, their crowns, and I know you have some thoughts on that. Um, but one thing I do like about this is that even in the Twilight world, the ring very much stays gold. Um, and that allows it to be something that draws the eye and really centers the ring, especially when Roto, uh, Frodo is trying to keep it from uh, the Witch King who's reaching out and seems to be just about to grasp it. And then there's this great shot of Frodo's hand, uh, the Witch King's hand, and just the gold ring in the middle of the Twilight world. And I think it just does a great job to center it and also give some life to what this shadow or Twilight world is. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I mentioned in, I think, two podcast episodes ago, um, my sort of upset at how um, aesthetically kind of boring um, some of the costuming choices are. So I won't go back into that again. Um, instead, I will highlight something that I really, really like, which is in... Um, in, in the sort of Twilight realm, um, when we see the Witch King for the first time, I just want to point out for anybody who's going to go back through and watch this scene, um, the embroidery on his costume is absolutely incredible. Um, and, um, you know, because I am sort of into this stuff, um, I have like a, a ranking going, a mental ranking going of like best bits of embroidery in these films. And really for me, um, the embroidery in this bit is never, is not topped until we get to Theoden's costume at Helm's Deep, which is some of the most spectacular embroidery I've seen in film ever. Um, but I would just really encourage um, anybody going back to watch the scene to really, really pay attention to the the sort of like um, the mastery of the embroidery there, because um, it is really, really worth looking at. And if you can find high quality pictures from like the 4K Blu-ray release, really having a look at how beautiful and intricate it is. I've never looked at that. So I am going to Google that literally as soon as we get off this episode. <laughs> Um, and then I also want to talk a little bit about Aragorn's arrival here um, when he jumps onto screen with a torch and sword. Um, this is really, like I mentioned earlier, kind of like the first real set piece um, of this movie. I, you can define that on Anyway, some might say the battle at Mount Doom to open up the movie or even the escape from the Shire could all constitute set pieces. But this is like kind of where we see this is what fight scenes are going to look like in um, Lord of the Rings, which... Uh, was absolutely blew me away. Again, I said I was uh, an action person, so that's why these movies spoke to me as a youth. Um, but like, kind of like our sword and sandal style, like fighting sequences were very much similar to stuff like Gladiator or Braveheart at this time. And those have, you know, some pretty interesting action sequences or fight scenes. But I feel like Lord of the Rings was the first time I saw just a great sense of showmanship combined with like gritty realness. And I use realness in a good way, as opposed to how we were talking about hyper-realism earlier. Um, because like you see like people take bumps, they get hurt, you'll see them bleeding. Um, but you know, there's also a good sense of geography location, which just happens when you're fighting physical actors on a physical set. Um, you can just really feel these battles and they're also very inventive and, um, a way that, 
these kind of fights hadn't been in cinema before. Um, the way Aragon is wielding both the sword and the torch, and it especially gets a little crazier once we get to Moria and we really see uh, Legolas in the later films. That's when they really dial it up to the fantastical level, but it's almost like it defined its own aesthetic. It kind of defines its own stunt choreography style, and it really comes through in this first sequence with Aragorn here. Yeah, and I think it's really worth noting that um, <laughs> this is Viggo Mortensen's first day on set. These are the first scenes that he ever filmed. Um, and far more than that, and far more impressively, I would say that it's his first time ever handling a sword. Um, and if you've ever like held a sword before, my God, what a way to like make you feel really inadequate because he's really doing incredibly well. And the fight choreography in this is beautiful, but but really sort of enhanced by his like skill with it. Um, and if you had asked me to guess how long he had been like practicing um, and, you know, using a sword and, and sort of sword play, I would not have guessed only a few hours. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, and I, I don't know how much of this is a stunt double or not, but they do have to do again with the beauty of, you know, clarity and filming and being able to see people's faces and bodies. Um, you can see his face is in there, him uh, waving the torch around. You could see him. He's like bent over. Um, you know, he's, you know, physically fucking doing shit uh, for lack of a better way to phrase that. Um, and it's really great. And it's all kind of like capped off with the last Nazgul left, who's kind of a distance away from Aragorn. And he just kind of looks at him. And instead of, you know, going blade to blade with him, he just, you know, whips his fucking torch right at the Nazgul's face. It sticks right into him. And then it goes off screen screaming, shrieking um, into the distance. And it gave me a big, uh, like a Western vibe, like a gunslinger at the OK Corral, or even like Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark when he's facing down the guy with the giant sword and he just kind of takes out his gun and pops him. Um, it has that kind of energy. And it really does a lot of, I don't know if I want to call it character work, but it tells us a lot about who Aragorn is, um, his ability, and also kind of just that he has a little bit of swagger to him, even though he is this supposed dirty, ranger, uh, friendless person from the North. Yeah. I, and I think, like, um, you know, it, it, it's not immediately apparent by the films, but I think given the context of um, what this place is to him in the books, um, is definitely something where you get the sense that um, this is Aragorn really being sort of compelled or propelled by the history around him and by his, um, you know, rapidly increasing need to to right the wrongs of his ancestors. Um, and what better place to to sort of show your, uh, like, ability to to not get fucked over by the Nazgul than, than here, surrounded by the kind of wreckage of your, your ancestors' failures. Um, so that is a, a clip of some of the most exciting music in this scene, but it, it's also quite rich for what it does in just 30 seconds there. And there, there are two main components of it that I want to talk about. Um, the first is the presence of the DSC Ray, um, which is um, one of the most quoted um, little bits of, of music and, and musical history, but it's a Gregorian chant based on um, a... Uh, uh, I'm going to call it a lament. It's not a, a lament, but it's based on a poem about the the last judgment, the final judgment, um, and the the sort of um, ascension and and judgment of souls um, by God at the end of days. Um, 
is um, incredibly recognizable. Um, I, I feel like even as I say like the words DSRA, you kind of get the the, the tune, so I won't have to sing it to you. Um, but it is um, a, a really good scene setter, and there's a reason why it is so oft quoted, but it is a really beautiful scene setter, um, and I think really fits well with the sort of environment of um, Amon Sul, because it is obviously someone's being judged, and whether it is uh, Aragorn, or whether it's Frodo, or whether it's the Nazgul, or whether it is the people who left the ruins of Amon Sul. We are not certain. Maybe it's all of them at once. Um, but using this musical um, motif, um, which will reoccur um, with Isengard um, and and the the troops of Isengard, is um, just a, a really beautiful way to to set that up. Um, and uh, <laughs> just something that I quite like a lot. I, I like the DSE Ray. Um, I'm a big uh, Gregorian chants fan. Um, I always have one when I'm working. Um, so <laughs> love it. <laughs> Explains quite a bit. Explains quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Um, oh, boy. Um, and then the other bit that I want to talk about slightly is the uh, similarities in in this piece of music to um, Karl Orff's um, O Fortuna from Carmina Burana, which is like got to be, I think, one of the most recognizable um, operatic pieces. It's a, yeah, it's an opera. Operatic pieces, choral pieces. Um, ever uh it is i mean i feel like that is the when people think opera or choral music that is one of the ones that they think um oh fortuna um contextually is um this is properly lament i'm gonna get this term right now this is properly lament to um fortune and that's capital f fortune there the 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 goddess or the like deity of um luck and and fate and the like sort of anarchy of fate um lowercase a anarchy of fate um and it essentially describes fate spinning her wheel um, and choosing at random, um, or sorry, fortune spinning her wheel and choosing at random the fates of men. And some people will um, find prosperity and success and others will find um, horrible, awful things in their future, but is is a functionally random thing. Um, and it is something that, that can't really be chosen. And I think in a lot of ways, um, this is um, immediately analogous to Frodo's story. Um, and I know the the movie kind of goes back in, in Moria, and I will be upset about this then in that episode when it comes. Um, the movie goes back on on this kind of notion of the the randomness of Frodo being the ring bearer and and the the lack of inevitability of it and the choice inherent to it. Um, but here, at least, I, and I think in, in um, Howard Shore choosing to have such like a clear reference to O Fortuna, um, you were really getting the sense that like no part of this moment had to happen like this. Um, it, it is truly sort of a random anarchic thing, but it is also something that is in a lot of ways and, and, and somewhat counterintuitively um, propelled forward by, by choice. Um, and Frodo never, when Frodo was born, there was nothing to say that he was going to end up at this point in his life. This is just how it's happened. Um, and I think that's sort of reflective of where Frodo is at emotionally um, at this point. And I think it, you know, using this, this musical motif is just a really beautiful way of doing that. And now we'll get into our token token book 
uh, analysis. And as we've mentioned, I think, a dozen times so far this episode, um, we want to dive into the Northern Kingdom, the Kingdom of Arnor, um, which was, you know, part of the Kingdom of Men as well, uh, along with Gondor in the South. Um, they don't get much play in these Lord of the Rings movies. You get a little bit more world building about them in the Hobbit films, specifically the Battle of the Five Armies, which again is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> um, but they do spend some time discussing um, some of the lands of the North and kind of what happened to them and how they're used now. Um, but I am going to kind of get out of the way here and let Emily, our Tolkien expert, kind of dive into the Northern Kingdom. Woohoo! Um, yeah, I've been really excited about this all day. I've been like, um, not not skiving off at work, but close to um, just to read the appendices where the, this is mentioned because I have been quite excited about this because it is a fun little bit of history. Um, I feel like I do this bit in every episode, but I I also feel like it is necessary because I'm not really expecting anybody to remember this. Um, the menfolk, the the descendants of Numenor, um, come from an island in the middle of the sea between um, Valinor, which is where the elves and the sort of godlike uh, creatures, the Valar, live, um, and Middle Earth slash Beleriand. Um, and Numenor is an island that was um, populated by like three houses, yada, yada, yada. They had their politics, they had their fun. Some of them got tricked into worshipping um, Sauron um, because they wanted to avoid death. The ones that didn't, led by Elendil and his sons, Sildur and Anarion, fled Numenor right before um, actual god in this universe sent a wave to destroy Numenor. Um, and the Numenorian faithful um, landed in Middle-earth and established um, a kingdom. Um, that kingdom was um, led by High King Elendil, um, but split in half in terms of governance. Um, the southern half, um, which is in, in this point in time, in, in the fellowship point of time, uh, known as Gondor, is led by um, Anarion, his uh, youngest son. Um, and the Northern Kingdom, um, also known as um, Arnor, was uh, led by Isildur, his eldest son. Um, and uh, <laughs> Arnor encompasses an enormous amount of space. It is basically everything from um, the Arid Luin, which is where Gimli's from, um, which is to the west of the Shire, um, through Angmar in the far north, right the way down essentially to um, Rivendell. Um, and in um, in canon, this region is called um, Eriador. Um, so if you hear people talking about Eriador, that, that's what this is. Um, not to be confused with Erebor, which is the only mountain. Um, it is quite hard to differentiate if you, like me, can't roll your R's. So, you know, there's that. Um, Eriador is the Northern Kingdom um, governed by um, Isildur um, after Isildur has his whoopsie, um, his uh, various uh, sons try and govern Arnor as a unified kingdom. Um, this causes some problems. There's eventually a split of um, Arnor um, into three um Fiefs, I guess, is is probably the, the um, closest accurate term, and that those are um, Arthedain, Cardolan, and uh, Rudaur. Um, Arthedain is where Isildur's line continued most consistently. Cardolan um, and Rudaur are kind of the problem children. Um, Cardolan also includes the Shire to an extent, and, and parts of Bree um, and the Barrowdowns. If you read the book, um, so so there's a lot going on there. Um, <laughs> 
these three regions, Arthedane, Cardolan, and Rudar, um, end up bitch fighting quite a bit, um, mostly over uh, the Weather Hills and Weathertop slash Amensul, which is where we are in this scene in the film, um, because that is the seat of the Palantir. Um, this infighting is the just the, some of the dumbest shit in the books, um, and it essentially kills off the northern Dunedain. Um, there are very, very few of them who survive these um, ongoing civil wars. Um, of the ones who do, they are led in part by a man named um, Arved- Arvedui, um, who is also quite arrogant. And one of the, the sort of recurring themes with the, the kings of men um, and why I tend to be unnecessarily harsh on them is because they are incredibly arrogant and incredibly stupid. Arvedui goes to the far north, um, hoping to track down some stuff that will help him fight Sauron, um, and he dies in a shipwreck because he does stuff that he was counseled against doing. Um, the elves, um, Círdan, the shipwright in particular, tells him not to do that shit, and Arvedui decides he is cleverer than everybody, and obviously dies for it. Um, a classic. Um, after this shipwreck up in um, Frojel, which is like the far north, um, some of his sons take up as the chieftain of the Dunedain, and their sons are then fostered in Rivendell by Elrond, who is obviously stepping in to make sure that the descendants of his long-dead twin brother stop doing incredibly stupid shit all the time. Um, this obviously takes quite its toll on Elrond, um, at least in the film universe, because by the time um, we meet Elrond, he is sick to death of the men, which is fair enough, King. Um Anyways, all this is happening in uh, in Arnor, the Northern Kingdom, um, and then they rapidly start to die out. Um, Gondor in the south, which is a flawless and perfect kingdom and absolutely nobody can critique it ever, um, thrives because it is better and smarter and not filled with stupid idiots. Um, and Gondor takes up essentially the position of um, the Byzantine Empire to the Roman Empire, which is to say that if... The Northern Kingdom is essentially the, the you know the classical Roman Empire, um, and Gondor is the the Eastern Roman Empire or or or, Byzant- or Byzantium. There is never a sense in Byzantium that they are not Romans, even when the Western Roman Empire dies out. The the Byzantines think of themselves as Romans, but obviously Rome is almost non-existent, taken over by the Goths, functionally irrelevant in terms of the actual empire. They still see themselves as Byzantines in the same way that the uh, Gondorim still see themselves as functionally part of this um, kingdom of the descendants of Numenor. This is important because it helps us to sort of understand later when we get to meeting Denethor for the first time, some of his skepticism, um, and it is also enumerated by, by, by Faramir in the books, which is essentially uh, the Arnorim, the, the, the men of the Northern Kingdom, made bad choices. They did stupid things and their kingdom died out. Why should Gondor take the hit when Gondor did nothing wrong? Um, and it is a, a good question worth asking and something that causes a lot of fights on Tumblr, on Tolkien and Tumblr, um, and it's quite a fun fight to have um, if you're interested in it. Um, but anyways, that's the context there. Um, Aragorn, when he's walking through um, Amun-Sul, is walking through essentially the Roman ruins of his time, except if his um, great-grandfather was Julius Caesar. Um, so the emotional weight here is incredible and intense. Um, and um, all the more so because he has had to largely patrol this region um, as part of his duties as 
the chieftain of the Dúnedain, um, the Rangers of the North, as they are referred to, who have taken up defending Eriador um, and, uh, you know, the hobbits <laughs> um, in the hundreds of years since their people screwed up real bad um, and destroyed their own kingdom. Yeah, no, that, that that's all fascinating. And it does make sense because uh, you mentioned a, uh, maybe in our first episode, uh, the Game of Thrones line about being king of the ashes. And with Aragorn coming through Weathertop, and I, presumably he's been at this location many times before without the hobbits, um, it is kind of look like this could be one fate for my kingship if I, you know, um, in the books, uh, you know, sorry, in the films, he's a little more unsure about whether he'll return to take the throne, it seems, um, whereas it seems to be his destiny more so in the books. And I may be using destiny a little loosely there, but um, so it does kind of portend like, what if I become king and this is what happens to the rest of Gondor or the other kingdoms of men or even the Shire and the other lands of Eriador that we've already visited in this film. So um, I'm mostly saying these comments just to give Emily a little bit of a break because I think she's winding up for her next little pitch here on Aragorn. Yeah, and I will just say I'm going to like lodge a grenade into this and then run away, but um, I think this um, that, that sort of historical context there justifies Boromir's Gondor has no king, Gondor needs no king line. Um, and when we get into the history of Gondor later and its relationship to the stewards and the, the its own kings, um, that line will become even more poignant, but Aragorn is very much the son of a ragged house. Um, his ancestors have not done so hot for themselves. So no fucking wonder, Boromir says, who's this prick then? Um, and with that, Aragorn. <laughs> um, so we briefly chatted about Aragorn in the last episode, and I skewered him for being a, a, an American libertarian a la Gary Johnson. Um, this is where I now get to redeem myself because I do actually find Aragorn incredibly interesting as a character um, and certainly his in-universe history. After having uh, just decried the Wikipediaification of fandom, I'm about to do exactly that, but it's okay when I do it because um, I'm a hypocrite and nothing, <laughs> nothing sticks to me. <laughs> um, so, Aragorn, uh, heir to Isildur, uh, son of Arathorn, chieftain in the Dúnedain of the North. Um, they're really only called the Dúnedain, but I insistently call them Dúnedain of the North because they're very much are the Dúnedain of the South and is shitty that we forget them. Anyways, uh, his mother, Gilrain, um, sorry, his father, uh, Arathorn, was killed by Oryx. His mother, Gilrain, sought refuge in Rivendell. Um, this is kind of a trend for... Um, all of the the sons of the uh, chieftains of the Dúnedain, um, but Aragorn's is kind of under greater need. Um, so Aragorn grows up in Rivendell, and there he falls in love with Elrond's daughter Arwen, um, and she is well, well. We'll get into her more in the next episode, and I have mm -hmm. so many things to say about her. But for here, uh, she's just Elrond's daughter, um, and Elrond says. Um, Arwen will not wed um, anyone less than the king of Gondor, which is uh, incredibly funny because Aragorn's claim is to the throne of Gondor. So Aragorn is obviously now on a death drive so he can shag, which, fair enough. Um, who among <laughs> us has that. not that? Yeah. <laughs> um, dudes rock. Um <laughs> So um, one of the things that I would like to break into this, because I am propagandizing for a variety of reasons, um, is um, Aragorn is a Sealder's heir, but his legitimacy as claimant to the throne of Gondor isn't just through a Sealder. 
is also through the line of Anarian. Um, his ancestor, who I mentioned, Arvedui, who's kind of a fucking idiot, um, was the and who was the last king of the north, was also married to Feriel, um, a woman of Gondor, who was the the daughter of and the third child of King Onderher of Gondor. This is all like the, all of these names sound fake. And after having earlier in this podcast just said that I could like make things up, um, I don't blame you if you think that I am. <laughs> but um, uh, so Furiel's father, uh, King Onderher of Gondor, um, had uh, three kids. Uh, last is Furiel, and then two older brothers, uh, one of whom is named Faramir. And this is interesting and kind of tragic for the reasons I'm about to explain. Um, but um, they are fighting the Witch King, um, because the Witch King is quite powerful. This is like around the 1900th year of the Third Age. I think it's like 1975 or something. It was a year that made me laugh. Anyways, um, (laughs) they're fighting the Witch King of Angmar. They're fighting him at the Moranin, which is the plane where they later fight Sauron-ish sort of fight at the Black Gate. Uh, They get their shit kicked in. Um, It is not a great battle for them. Um, And Onderher's two sons die um the second youngest son second oldest second youngest son faramir was actually meant to stay in uh Minas Tirith, um and hold down the fort because obviously he's the spare um so he shouldn't also be out fighting with the air um but disguised himself um and went to fight in the battle who does that sound like um anyways uh faramir and his older brother um get wiped out um and also their father king under her which means that under the laws of numenor which are a lot more progressive in some ways and i can't believe i'm saying progressive around aristocratic laws of succession but here we are um women could claim the throne um and in numenor there were a couple ruling queens um with varying levels of success but technically feriel had a right to claim the throne of gondor um and the lords of gondor said no um, and they also said no to her husband, Arvedui, who said, look, I'm the heir of a sealder, and I'm also married to the heir of an area, and really, you should make me king. And the lords of Gondor went, no, your people are fools. We're absolutely not letting you anywhere near our throne. We are going to give this to um, a, like a distant cousin of the House of Anarion, a guy named Irinel, who was like one of the generals at the disaster of the Moranin. Anyways, they effectively exile Arvedui and Feriel to the north. So all of this to say, um, Aragorn actually has claim uh, to the throne, both through Isildur and through Anarion. Um, it's just that because his claim on the Anarion side is through a woman, that it does not get much play. Um, yeah, no, uh, that's all interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh, catch your breath here for a second. Um, I wish I could add more on the Northern Kingdom. Um, I don't think there's anything that uh, Emily is really missing out. Um, But maybe since I'm assuming some of you who have followed me from elsewhere, um, you can see a lot of the stuff that informs A Song of Ice and Fire in what we're talking about here, Um, specifically with what we were just talking about with uh, kind of the fight over who would rule Gondor, whether it be uh, Furiel as a ruling queen um, and like people being like, no, we want a dude to do that. Um, That's very much going to be part of the main thrust of this new Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon. Um, And because I don't have these notes in front of me, I want to avoid uh, misusing the wrong Targaryen name here, but 
essentially the king passed away and had no male heirs at the time. Um, so it was supposed to go to his daughter. Um, but then, you know, other people are like, no, it should go to a dude or this dude or that dude or this bastard son. Um, and that's basically where the whole House of the uh, Dragon story takes place. It's called the Dance of Dragons in a Targaryen Civil War. Um, and then just to give you a little bit more Game of Thronesy stuff is obviously the North is a big part of the narrative in there. Um, they were not a fallen kingdom in the same way that Arnor is, but we actually do see the rise of it as a kingdom in uh, the show, the books, um, with Rob Stark becoming king in the North. And then we do see its fall in kind of the shambles it is in when the Boltons take control. Um, and this is also at the same time that Mance Raider is leading the people from beyond the wall south um so it kind of just leaves everything in chaos and of course the ultimate evil the ultimate danger the white walkers the others they all come from the north and the northern kingdom is the first line of defense against all that um i definitely think a lot of the inspiration from uh, what goes into the north in a song of ice and fire can be taken from um kind of what tolkien was playing around with with lord of the rings and john snow um the ranger in black from the north you should already be seeing the aragorn <laughs> bells all over him um, and his uh, story arc is kind of a play on the exile king or the long lost prince kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it takes it in a different way. And I'm not going to get into it here. Again, I'm mostly trying to give Emily some time to catch her <laughs> breath. But we will probably do a full on Aragorn episode. Um, and maybe I can convince Emily to do a full on. These are all the uh, latter influ influences in Game of Thrones or something. But we'll save that for now. I think Emily uh, had a chance to catch her breath. So I will let her go again. <laughs> um yeah so so this is what i just outlined there is the emotional and historical baggage that aragorn comes to um to weather top with um and i think it is kind of interesting to think about these things pr particularly as he progresses through um the next couple of film scenes that we deal with um and, and kind of culminating with the council of Elrond and his um we chat with boromir um but one of the other sort of little bits of personal history that i want to give to aragorn um that um never gets play in the theatrical editions of the films but does get play in the extended edition of two towers is um the fact that as part of his training his, his sort of un unofficial kingship training um aragorn spent quite a bit of time um in um, well, all the way around Middle-earth, really. He goes to the south to Harad, um, east past the Sea of Rune, um, and very, very crucially, he spends time in um, Gondor um, under the name Thorongil, which means um, like like noble eagle, I think. Um, and he, he does so under the rule of the steward Exalion II, who is Denethor's father. Um, and while he's in Gondor um, defending um, or, or fighting back from the corsairs at Pelargir, who are the pirates that we see in Return of the King, um, he kind of strikes up a bit of a uh, personal animosity slash um, uh, competition with Denethor for the regard of his father, the Steward Ecthalion, um, which obviously has echoes in how the movie plays up um, Boromir and Faramir's relationship um, which I'm just not going to say anything else on because I won't be able to stop myself. But but it is interesting that that Aragorn is actually um, experienced with um, has experience with Gondor, um, and he also has experience with um, 
Rohan the Rittermark under the rule of King Thengel, who is Theoden's father. Um, so he has got loads of experience on his hands in terms of kingship by the time he shows up to claim the throne. Um, that is definitely played down in the films, uh, almost entirely erased just for the sake of doing this like, um, uh, yeah, he, well, kind of hero's journey, but like this, this need to like accept who he is or whatever Alrond's, um, line is in the, the Christian girl autumn scene in Return of the King. Um, but, but yeah, so, so Aragorn in the books definitely knows what he's doing. Um, it should also be noted that he never shuts up about the fact that he is a Sildur's heir and a Lendil's heir, and it's never coy about that in the films they get rid of that, which makes him a lot more likable. Um, but yeah, he is, he is a guy who really knows what he's about and has, um, 80 some years of experience with these sorts of things. And by the time he gets to Amon Sul and knows that he is at this point where he is either going to end up in a year's time dead or on the throne of Gondor, he is really having to start to reflect on what these ruins ar- around him really mean and what um, he makes of himself um, when he is passing through these places and and kind of going through the tri- like the Herculean tasks that um, a lot of his forefathers failed quite badly. Yeah, um, I'm going to use the word trope here, and I just want to clarify when I use the word trope, it is like value neutral. I don't mean it as a good or bad thing, but I think a very common trope and one that rears its head in these Lord of the Rings films is the idea of a reluctant ruler or a reluctant would-be king. Um, and that's what the stories, the films here really play up with Aragorn. Like he's leading almost because he must, but you know, if he had his way, he would leave it to other men. Um, but you know, I, as you say in the text, he's very much he knows what he's about son um he is very much i am the future king when it's time i'm going to unhurl my banner and i'm going to you know draw the blade that was broken and i'm going to ma- march with the great company into minas tirith um ready to fight the dark forces here it's definitely played i think effectively i don't think it's a mark against the films but it's just a different take um and one that has since been played a lot more um, that, you know, he's kind of reluctant and is kind of forced into this by circumstance and situation, especially later on in Fellowship when uh, Gandalf, you know, quote unquote, dies in Moria. Um, you know, he's kind of left to lead the Fellowship, having to deal with uh, Boromir about to crack um, and, you know, Frodo having his own conflicts about whether he should stay with the company or leave. Um, it does, I think it makes for good, you know, cinematic storytelling and giving Vigo and Aragorn stuff to do and making him a more compelling character. Um, but I will like, kind of reiterate for real life, um, the idea that a reluctant ruler would be a good ruler <laughs> is absolutely not true, um, absolutely not close to reality. Um, not that people who want to rule are any better. In fact, they're probably worse. Uh, but I, I just think there's this kind of tired trope broadly in art, in media, that a reluctant ruler is definitely better to hold power. And that's kind of what the films kind of go with in terms of his character arc. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this and I was sort of wondering if this is like I mean, I know we still definitely have this like whole reluctant ruler shit now. Um, but um I, I I'm sort of wondering given the context of the late nineteen nineties, if this is in some ways a sort of reaction to um or or like a um uh, an entry in support of kind of the death of ideology. Um and you, you see now um that there's this sort of like shorthand of people who are like uh, firm in their 
beliefs and and like strong in the assertions that they make that they're like being needlessly ideological and like ideology in itself is sort of a, 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 a I don't want to say slur but is is something that is broadly seen as negative and there's like a problem with being ideological um and um in an extended sense Aragorn um openly and sort of proudly being like I am the king I am the rightful king is, is an ideological take um and in the books that is certainly like suffused with the the sort of royalist um ideology of of, of of the books and, and of, to- of Tolkien himself. Um, and I, I'm sort of wondering if like, you know, in the 1990s of this like desperation to get beyond ideology, because obviously ideology became unnecessarily unnecessary the minute the Berlin Wall fell or whatever garbage, um, there was this desire to have a reluctant king so that he wouldn't be, he wouldn't evoke, you know, Lenin or whoever the fuck, um, or um, have this sort of vibe of like, we feel too strongly about things. Um, and that is a problem because the minute you start feeling strongly about things, you start fighting cold wars or whatever. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter and now Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, Manuclear Bomb, at patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and other projects I've been working on. And Manuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontieras. And I've been Emily, and you can find me at JRR Tweeting on Twitter. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.